You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. 1 Kings 16, we'll start at verse number 29 this morning. If you've been following the series, you know that as we've been going through Kings, especially chapter 16 now, we know and understand that all is bad. All is evil. It goes from one bad king to the next. And it's troubling. If you were a believer of Yahweh in Israel during this time, this would be disconcerting for you. One bad king after another bad king, evil everywhere. And just when you think it couldn't get any worse, we come to verse number 29 of chapter 16. And in the thirty and eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, the son of Amri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Amri, reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all kings of Israel that were before him. In his days did Hiel the Bethelite build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof, and Abiram, his firstborn, and set up the gates thereof, and his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. And Elijah, the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward, and hide thyself in the brook Cherith, which is before Jordan. And it came, and it shall be, that thou shalt drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Cherith, that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. And this is the word of the Lord. What I'd like to do this morning is briefly review from last week to get us up to speed and then finish, actually, the message that we started last week. We said there was evil everywhere. Just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, you have Ahab. Ahab comes on the scene, and Jeroboam is nothing compared to Ahab. Ahab has Jezebel, of course, the worshiper of Baal. She has now set up places for Baal to be worshipped in God's land, and she is killing God's people. And then it talks about Jericho there, the fact that the word of God means nothing. Ahab was aware of this prophecy and still went forward. Everything is Baal. Everything is bleak. Everything is dark. Everything is evil. And out of nowhere, 
Elijah shows up. We know nothing about him. And the narrator reminds us that it's not important. What is important is that Elijah shows up. His name means my God is Yahweh. In the darkest hour, he is there with the message. And so he preaches and proclaims the word. He tells Israel, no more rain, no more word. You are under judgment. And then last week, we talked about just two points. We got to the first one. And again, let me remind you, how many folks, some folks said that last week, was, this was the first time they had ever heard the story of Elijah, the ravens, and the widow woman. Is there anybody here that's the first time you've ever heard that story? Okay, a couple. All right, God bless you. For most of us, we have heard this story growing up, and we're familiar with the story, and right away as we hear it, we start making all kinds of applications. And so I said last week, I'm probably not going in the direction that you think we're going. The first point last week was this, the apparent success of evil. These were dark days. They were dark days for God's people. And these are dark days. These are dark days for God's people. And yet, Elijah's sudden appearance in the midst of this great movement of evil reminds us that we need not despair. And last week, we gave two reasons. Number one, because the God of heaven knows who you are and where you are and what you face. There's nothing new to him. He is not surprised. He knows. He sees. He cares. I was reminded this morning after looking at that picture of some young man that I don't even recognize that years ago we had a a dear woman here named Jean Warwick. And Jean, when I got her, her voice was already going, but she loved to sing. And she would sing the song, Does Jesus Care? When I've said goodbye to the dearest of friends to me, and it goes on and on, and then she would sing out in her high-pitched, old, crackly voice, Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. And so when we find ourselves in the midst of evil, the reminder of Elijah, my God is Yahweh, reminds us that our God knows all about it. He cares, he sees, and he's at work. And then we said last week that this sudden appearance of Elijah reminds us that God has already prepared his countermeasures against evil. Elijah was already prepared. He showed up, but but he was ready. And this is the way God works. And we said last week that before the foundation of the world, that God had a plan. And we even see that plan in the first three chapters of Genesis. When Adam and Eve blow it, and they sin, and they throw the world into chaos, and yet in the midst of that, God had already an answer for evil. And he says to Eve, listen, the serpent will bruise the heel of your seed, but your seed will crush his head. That's a counter plan to evil. And what he was saying is, I'm going to send one who will fix all of this. And he did through Jesus Christ. And that's how God works. And he can raise up men and women with no name, no reputation, no schooling, knowing nothing about them, and can combat evil wherever he has placed them. And again, just so that you remember this morning, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light. We are the ones who say, listen, the God of heaven is real. He's changed my life. He's transformed me. There is hope for you in him. So the apparent success of evil is at best superficial. It will not last. It cannot last. 
God will be victorious. But here's the second point I want to bring out this morning. And again, I don't think you'll see this one coming. I want to talk to you about the suffering of the saints. If the success of evil is superficial, then the suffering of God's saints are certain. Think of the story. No rain. No word. Elijah leaves Israel. They are under judgment. And and God says to Elijah, Elijah, you get up. I'm going to take care of you. Go to the brook. There's water there. I'll command the ravens or the crows to feed you. I'll take care of you. And then he goes on to say, and after that, go see a widow and she will sustain you. And we hear the story and we know the story. And for almost all of us, if not all of us, we identify with Elijah or the widow woman. and say, well, I'm a servant of God, and so God will sustain me and care for me and do all these things just like he did for Elijah. Or I'm just his follower like the widow woman becomes, and so he will take care of me there as well. And the truth of the matter is Elijah had a job, and God sustained him until his job was done. And you and I have a job, and he will sustain us until our job is done. But I have a question for you this morning. During this time in Israel, yes or no, were, were there God's people in Israel during this reign of Ahab, yes or no? Yes, we know it, right? At least 7,100, at least. Men and women who had not bowed the knee to Baal, who had not kissed his image, who said, I am a follower of Yahweh. 7,000. And yet, they are in Israel under this government, with these policies, no rain, no word, no widow, no ravens. And none of us want to dare identify with them. Because these people are God's followers and they are suffering. But we want to be Elijah. We want to be the widow woman. And I don't think we would say this out loud, although I'm amazed how many things are said out loud that are so stupid they shouldn't be said out loud. I really am. I think social media is killing our world today. I cannot believe the stupidity and the ignorance that is just, I mean, it just, it it oozes out everywhere. So I'm not surprised if we say stupid things. But I don't think this morning as believers, any one of us would say out loud that, well, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, and so, therefore, I don't deserve to suffer. I don't deserve to struggle. I don't deserve pain. I don't deserve heartache. I don't deserve any type of trouble whatsoever. I should be immune and protected from all of it. Now, I don't think you would say that out loud if you know the Word of God. But that is our mentality today. That is how 21st century North American believers feel today. That somehow God has called us to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and never have any struggle, and never have any problems, and we are the Elijahs, and we are the widows, and we are always the victorious ones that have all of our needs met. And I'm here to tell you, there were 7,100 in Israel who did not bend the knee 
and a raven never showed up. And a widow didn't live next door. And the rain didn't fall. And the word through Elijah was already gone. God did not save us so that we would never have struggles. That is not the idea of salvation. God saved us to save us from the wrath to come. My friend, we're walking off this planet. You can say what you want. You can think what you want. You can mock what you want. We're all going to die. And in that great unknown, you will stand before the God of heaven. And he will judge you. And it will not be, I'm a good guy, I'm a good girl, I'm better than him, I'm better than her. No, you will stand before a holy God who sees all of you, every thought, every intent, every imagination, every evil within your heart that you'd be mortified if it came on the screen this morning. God knows and sees you have sinned against a holy God and a holy God will judge you. None will be okay at that judgment. None, except... Isn't the word but a great word? The conjunction but, B-U-T. But for those who put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ and the finished work of Calvary, you can be saved from the wrath to come. That's what God has saved us from. But if you're here this morning as a believer and you really do, you wouldn't say it out loud, but the mentality is, I deserve. I should be immune. I should be protected from this. I'm a child of God. Let me help you this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm just going to read verses 21 through 25 and make some statements, and then we'll do something together that I hope to be helpful. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. Now, before Peter gets to verse 21, he's already talking about servants or slaves in those days who came to Christ and their owners aren't too hip on them embracing Christ. And so now they're struggling. They're suffering. Verse 21, Peter says, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Who, Jesus, did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. For ye were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of our souls. Let me just tell you several things that, that, that Peter's saying here before we move on. Number one, Peter assumes that in every age God's people will suffer. Whether it's the slave of the first century or all we like sheep who've gone astray, we will suffer. We are not above our master. We are not above our Lord. So he assumes that. Not only that, he says we're called to take that suffering patiently. A matter of fact, the Bible says that we're appointed unto that. To suffer is an opportunity to show um, how highly we regard the God that we serve. When we suffer and we're faithful, we are saying, God, you are worthy whether you give me anything or not. Not, God, you are worthy because I keep on getting from you. It displays the power of his grace that sustains us. 
And in patience, it completes us. He then tells us the best way to know how to take it patiently is by showing us the example of Christ to imitate. Here is Jesus, the one who was truly innocent, perfect. And not only that, he was loving, he was kind, he did good things, miraculous miracles, and yet it was not enough to keep him from suffering. And I'm not just talking about the cross, but in his life. And yet, in that suffering, not one hasty word, not one angry word. A matter of fact, while they were killing him, he was saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And he commits himself to a faithful creator. Peter reminds us that if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that we are not of those that quit and draw back and faint. We are not to hide from, uh, to look for ways out of, when there is no word, when there is no rain, when there is no raven, when there is no widow. We are to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter wants us to know, to look to Jesus. And so, this morning, I want us to think about the 7,100 club that suffered. And what I'd like to do this morning is I would like us to sort of develop a theology of suffering. Because that's what everybody wants on Sunday morning, right? I want you to take notes this morning. I want you to write four things down. Whether it's in your phone, um, on a piece of paper, on the picture of the back of your bulletin. Instead of writing mustaches, take some notes. Or at least write a goatee on there. It would maybe look more like me. Just speckle it with white and black. I want to give you four things about suffering this morning as we think about the 7,100 club. This morning, I know that we would all prefer to see God in our success. Right? God, show me your power. Show me your beauty. Grow me in my success. But here's the problem. Most of us, if not all of us, do poorly in success. When things are good... When I'm walking on sunshine, oh, and it feels good, guess what? I am not looking for God. And we'd like to think that, God, just show me in my success. That's not how it usually works. There's a song that John Newton wrote. It's, I ask the Lord that I might grow, and it's his prayer to grow. And let me, let me read for you this song that was his prayer and show you how God answered his prayer. And I think it will make sense for us this morning. He says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Good prayer. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it, was, it has been in such a way that almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more 
with his own hand, it seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I I trembling cried. Will thou pursue this worm to death? Here's God's response. Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I'll answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thine all in me. God, reveal yourself to me, but do it in my success. And that's not what happens. Number one, suffering teaches us that God will reveal himself to us. In suffering, the God of heaven comes to us. And it's not merely intellectually. Oh, I know that. I know this. I've read this. No, it becomes relationally. When I suffer, things change. And God truly reveals himself to me then. The psalmist knew this. Psalm 91 Verse 1, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge, my fortress, my God. In him will I trust. When suffering, when trouble, when disappointment, when heartache, when pain comes my way, listen, God is revealing himself to us so that I now can say, you are my fortress, my refuge, my high tower. You are my God, and I will trust in you. Number one, God reveals himself through suffering. Number two, God reveals our hearts in suffering. If you really want to know what's in the heart of the person, any person, these two tests will tell you. Number one, play sports. Whether it's spoons across the table or a soccer field. I don't know what it is about sports, but people that you think are sweet, meek, and mild go crazy. Like violently crazy. Why? Because they're violently crazy. Because the sport brings it out of them. It is the same with suffering. When we suffer, when we are squeezed, when the problems come, what's inside of us will come out. And listen to me. It's not magical like, whoa, I didn't know where that came from. That just didn't appear out of nowhere. Do you know in this auditorium, I think, I know there are dust particles all over the place. Not because we're filthy animals, but because they're dust particles. They're in your house, they're everywhere, and you don't see them until the sun comes out. And when the sun comes out, there's dust particles everywhere. And when we suffer and the sun comes out, we are exposed. It reveals our hearts, our weakness, and our sins. Areas that we're not willing to address, areas that we have hidden, that we have suppressed. Suffering comes. It's exposed. Our pride, our selfishness, our self-righteousness, our motivation, our temper, our patience, and our idols. It reveals our hearts. 
Number three, suffering realigns our priorities. When life is good, we drift. We drift. And sufferings bring us back down to earth. In a moment. In an instant. And the things that we thought were so important and had to be done and must be accomplished, in a moment, they change. Why? Because suffering brings us back to reality. I was with Greg Manning on Thursday and took him down to Windsor. And he'd be there early in the morning, so dropped him off. And uh, I went to go grab a, a coffee and a bunch of other stuff from McDonald's. Because you can't just go there and get a coffee. Got, they got muffins and bagels and some other stuff. So grab the stuff. I thought, well, I got some time. It's going to be a little while. So I thought, I'm just going to sit here for a few minutes. And I got a table, sat by myself. And across from me was, was this conclave of old retired people. Okay? And nothing wrong with old retired. It's great. But I sat there and I listened to their conversation. And it was so banal, I could not believe. For I mean, for 20 minutes, it's like, wah, 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 wah. And they're talking away, and, and they're complaining about, well, this place serves chicken on Friday, but the other church has roast beef, and they're going on and on about this, this meals that are free, and we're going to get the most for your buck. And then they go on and they say this, this is going to offend some of you, but they said, yeah, those city workers, overpaid, undereducated. <laughs> Sorry, city workers. And they're going on and on. I mean, they all got an opinion. They're, they're talking about this. And then they, they're all upset about um, kids not um, writing in cursive. And, I mean, the conversation was so banal and pointless. And I just thought to myself as I sat there drinking my coffee, oh, my word, I'm headed toward this. <laughs> is this what life is? And it's not. It's not. And all it takes is one moment of suffering. And who cares about the city workers who are overpaid and undereducated? We still love Dennis. Who cares if a kid's writing cursive or not? Who cares who has the best potluck across town? Nobody cares. Because in that moment, we view eternity. We view life and death and forgiveness and reconciliation. And the things that really matter, we understand that our life is brief. It ought not be banal. And some of this morning, I'm telling you, you don't have to be a retiree sitting at McDonald's, which there's nothing wrong with, but your lives are banal. Because it's easy. Our lives are easy. And even those of us who struggle in areas of finances or whatever, it's, it's easy. Suffering will realign our priorities. Fourthly, suffering refines us. Suffering refines us. I know this is cliche, but this is good. This is good enough to repeat, and we should repeat. If God brings us to it, he will be with us and bring us through it. You've heard that. And it's true. It is true. And there is something about suffering 
that refines us. The dross and the silliness and the waste is burnt away. I'm dealing with a young couple this weekend, even. Suffering in a way they couldn't imagine and would never think of and surprised and shocked by all those things. And yet to watch them, to know in our hearts as we saw it all displayed in front of us that God was using that to refine them. To refine them. What a great day this morning to have Angelie in the back. And I even did her name right all the time now. No more Angelie, none of that. It's Angelie. I got it. I got it. But, but in our church in October, two situations where two little girls, the same age, one with a heart problem, one with cancer in the brain, it's like, who in the world would wish for those things? Who wants that report? And yet, we have watched them. We have heard from them. We have read the thank you notes and the reports that say, God's at work. Our relationship's changing. We're seeing his hand. We know he's in this thing. I can't believe what he's doing here and there. We were just with the Hoffmans on Monday, and the same thing, baby Colette, that they're amazed in all of this suffering, that God is using it for his glory, but he is refining his people. He's refining them. I have to tell you something. Brett and Alyssa will never be the same. And Tim and Katie will never be the same. Because God uses these things to refine us, and we have seen it. I've been here now for almost 18 years, and I have seen widows and widowers lose the dearest person in life to them. Gone. You know, on Sunday morning, show up and praise the God who gives and takes away. What's going on? They're being refined. Refined. I've seen those in darkness and depression who struggle literally to get out of bed in the morning. I'm not talking about feeling blue. I'm talking about darkness. Yet in the process, they get up and they do what they know is right to do and they trust God in the process and they lean on Him and whether they feel like it or not, they do what God has called them to do and they grow and they grow deep and they are refined because of it, even when they don't feel anything. I've watched parents bury their children. And in confusion and questions and the whys, I've watched them faithfully serve God and trust Him and be refined. I've seen parents heartbroken over wayward children, to be devastated, to start the blame game into what is going on. And yet, I've watched them grip to the Lord, and I've watched them grow in such a way that it can't be explained what was going on. God was refining them. We have seen those in chronic pain in our midst with cancer. And they are encouraging Others who don't even need encouragement. They're refined. A couple in our church, for 18 months, out of work. 
And, and it was during a day where no assistance, no social network to catch them, had a few small kids, I think, and for 18 months, no work. And yet, after almost 87 years on the planet, and his bride, who's much, much younger, Ian and Judy Cameron would tell you today that for those 18 months, you wouldn't have changed anything. Not one thing. Do you know why? Because God refined them. And God taught them something about themselves and about him, and they were never the same. And today, do you know who we run to? We run to them. So before you identify with Elijah, you might want to stop for a second. Because suffering is a reality, and yet God uses it in our lives to refine us. For today, many of us struggle, and I'm not minimizing our struggles. I'm not. I know there's heartache and heartbreak in our church. We struggle. We have hardship, difficulties, obstacles, inconveniences, and pain. And the problem is we want out. We want to quit. We want to cry. We want to go in the fetal position and just be left alone. It's too much, we say. But listen to me. Unless you embrace what God is doing, we will forever be children. Children. Because God uses these things to reveal himself, to reveal our hearts, to realign our priorities, and to refine us into the men and women that he's called us to be. It grows us. It grows us. And so, this morning, I want us to cast our anchor in the dark. And we can, because there is a solid rock. There's a rock that holds. There's a rock that we can cling to. There's a rock that never changes. And his name is Jesus Christ. And we can cling to him. And in the process of clinging to him, we do find hope. We do find help. We do see a vision of what he's trying to do in our lives. Paul helps us in Romans chapter 8 this morning. You know the verse. You could quote it. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them who are called according to his purpose. Right? We know that verse. But do you understand what he's saying? He is saying that all things, and that all things means all things, all things are working together for good. And then he clarifies in verse 29 by telling us what that ultimate good is. Being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So God is saying, I waste nothing What I bring into your life is for good. I will use it for good. And the ultimate good will be this, that you will grow up to look like your older brother, Jesus Christ. And that, my friend, is the best thing. And so then he says this, verse 31. What shall we say to these things? And these things is what he just said. If God wastes nothing, if what he brings is good, whether we see it or not, if he's transforming us into the image of Christ... What should we say to these things? And here's what he comes up with. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for you, 
Who can be against you? What can be against you? What situation? And the answer is nothing and no one. If God is for us, who can be against us? If he gave us his son, will he not freely give us all things? Who can condemn us? No one. And then he says, who can separate us? Verse 37. Nay, in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature can separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. We are more than conquerors this morning. And whether there is oil or flour in the cruise, or whether we are the saints of Hebrews chapter 11, which closes and says, and others, you should read it, and others who were tortured, and others who were killed, and others who had hard times, they were still heroes of the faith, and others. We are more than conquerors. Why? Because we lose nothing but dross. Dross and garbage and junk. That's what we lose in the process. And we never have a just cause for despair. Never. And so this morning, listen to me. I do want us to identify with the 7,100 club. Because that's reality. That's life. But understand this. In this process, where you're at today, God will reveal himself to you. He will pull back the reins of your heart and reveal your heart to yourself. He will realign our priorities, and they all need to be adjusted. And he is at the work of refining us. Now, I've got to warn you. Don't just walk out of here with a list and say, oh, there's a list. Yep, suffering, check, 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 check. That will not work. Because you've missed the key component. Because in all of this, you must know that truth, but you must know the truth. You must know Him. It's all about Christ. And when these things happen, we must, we must gaze upon Him adoringly and deeply and say, God, You are the Christ who suffered for me. Not to spare me from suffering, but to save me and to suffer with me. And our problem this morning is this. We don't think deeply enough about the Christ that we serve. We read our Bible and check our boxes. We come to church and go watch TV. We, we don't think. But when we think of him, when our gaze is fixed on him, when he is our all in all, when he is beautiful and, and worthy, and we see him for who he is, then things in our heart and our minds change. And then we look at that list and say, yes, 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 yes. Why? Because of him. Because of him. And so this morning, I want you to develop a theology of suffering, because you will suffer. Will God bring ravens? Yeah, sometimes. You live in Chatham, of course, there'll be crows around. Sometimes. Sometimes the oil keeps on coming. But sometimes there is no rain. Sometimes it's dry. And it's dark. And God's command for us is, to cast your anchor in the dark 
Do not doubt in the dark what you know to be true in the light. Don't do it. Look to him. Look to him. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. He wastes nothing. He wastes nothing. He reveals himself. He reveals our hearts. He realigns our priorities. And he is in the work of refining you and me for his glory and our good.